0: Hi, I'm Steve Hasson, and welcome to the Influence Continuum. I am delighted to have a very dear old friend and colleague, over 30 years we've known each other, John Atak, uh who lives in Nottingham, England, and uh, John and I met, I think, in 1989. Uh, And John was the foremost expert on Scientology, and I was the foremost expert on the Moonies. And we just like clicked, and we've become fast friends ever since. And uh, John, um, it's a delight to have you on my podcast, and I want to just read... uh, I want to introduce John A. new book, Opening Our Minds. Which exposes the similarities between authoritarian cults, multi level marketers, pedophile groomers, terrorist radicalizers, pimps, and even spousal abusers. It highlights the manipulative tricks shared by political spin doctors, advertisers, and PR people. The book shows how to recognize human predators and prevent them from influencing our kids and ourselves. John has helped more than 600 people in their recovery. He's been a consultant or expert witness in at least 150 court actions and worked on over 200 media pieces. John has published more than 500 articles and papers and over 300 videos. He has a YouTube channel. His history of Scientology, Let's Sell These People, A Piece of Blue Sky is a bestseller that Scientology tried to suppress and failed. He has spoken at conferences all over the world and led the Five Day Getting Clear of Scientology seminar in Toronto. And I was very grateful to be a guest speaker uh, with him. He's a scholar practitioner for 40 years. And John, um, as you know, I'm your biggest fan. Um, You are a a treasure uh, of knowledge and experience. But what I love also about you is you're, you're a real human being. You're well-rounded. You're down to earth. You have humility. You're a musician. You're an artist. You're a, you're a painter. You're a poet. You're a translator, a novelist. I could go on and on and on. But I wanted you on my podcast because I really love this new book that you did. Uh, and I'm calling it the best new book Uh, about cults uh, because it really breaks down very complicated ideas into uh, easy to understand examples. And is it fair to say that you have decided uh, that your focus is best spent in preventive education, you know, wanting to develop curriculum and teach young people, but also everybody how to protect themselves?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, an ounce of prevention is, is worth about seven tons of cure. That um, and, and understanding that that the same dynamics apply, you know what it's like when you, you left the moon is you think, I, I was in this group, those other groups are cults.
0: And then you kind of realize I oh, did. Yeah. I thought Scientology was a cult. You're, how yeah. did you
1: know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was in Scientology and I knew the moon was a cult. Um, right. Exactly. That, so, you know, there's this kind of process of, I I tend to think that when when you leave an authoritarian group, you're about 12 years old, you've been reduced down to that kind of just coming into puberty stage where you're controllable. And so then you have to go through adolescence when you leave. And part of that is realizing that the tricks and the traps are the same throughout society. And then, of course, getting that society functions in this way, that we live in a society that's like, nested cultic shells um yeah so, you know, and and looking at the way our education system works it's authoritarian and it doesn't yep. need to be you know one of the big things for me is is that we live in a time where many of the people i speak to and in this counter field as well they've given up they don't really think there is any hope anymore because the situation in the world is pretty desperate you know with global yep. warming with anti-vax movements with all sorts of you know people like Bolsonaro and Duterte in power. And we could sit here and list probably 20 or 30 really dangerous authoritarian leaders. And so yep. people have, have often sort of said, well, we're doing the best we can and we might manage to help a few people. I don't have that point of view at all. I think we are at a point of transformation in the world where we can really make a difference right now. But it does mean that we're going to have to do something, sitting back and going, yeah. Someone should do something about that isn't actually going to work anymore. It's, we've all got to be Greta Thunberg or Greta Thunberg, if we prefer that pronunciation. We've all got to get out there and say, enough, blah, blah, blah. Let's do right. something.
0: So, right. And, and, and so I share your visionary, uh, aspirational, uh, desire to take our body of knowledge and experience, you're in your 60s, I'm in my 60s, mm-hmm. and to transmit it in a, in a way and have a platform where powerful influencers who are going, what do we do? And they're so paralyzed because things are interconnected yep. and, and money has corrupted so many people, yeah. not to mention bad actors doing psyops Mm-hmm. Uh, from outside, but inside yeah. countries, and I'm not just talking about America, but the UK, mm-hmm. Europe, et, et cetera. Um, and so, and and I think you share my my belief that former members who have experienced the loss of their freedom, who've experienced the their personality and their beliefs being, you know, molded into some totalist you know system uh, is oppressive and, and 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 harmful to for even people's health so um, I want you to give a please what are the highlights of opening your minds and why should people buy it or listen to the audiobook um, and and then share it as as a gift I think the
1: important thing is that you and I both you know, having each of us spent about four decades doing this, have come to realise that there are some very straightforward and simple ideas. And if we could get those through to children, if we could get them through to 13-year-olds, then they'd be much less likely to be drawn into the, the web of influence that's, you know, the influence continuum, as you put it. That right. That is, you know, they'd they're be less likely to join authoritarian groups, to, to become authoritarian in their beliefs, which is to say they'll be less likely to be bullied. It's another way of saying it. And they'll be less likely right. to become bullies. They also won't get into relationships with people that are damaging. So the, the first for me, the the first point is to recognize what are human predators? Who are these people? And, and rather than getting into the, are we going to diagnose this person as a psychopath, a sociopath? Um, a Machia- somebody with a Machiavellian personality disorder, a malignant narcissist, what have you. I don't really mind about that or how it came about. That's all very interesting. I mind that we are affected by them on a daily basis. Many of our politicians are predators. M- many of the people leading corporations, and you know, it is not necessarily true. There are people high up in the business world who really care about the human race and, you know, have the good fortune to have met such people, and they really do invest um, their fortunes. You have things like, say, the Reboot Foundation, where a very wealthy woman has decided she wants the world to understand critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very important. So, but there are people who are predatory, and we seem to get rather a lot of them in leading positions in the society by teaching kids to recognise this. And it's very simple. You know, I boiled it down to one page with which I start the book so that before reading anything else, you can go, right. well, here's the, this is the page you need to read. And it shows you what these people are like. If you or I had read that before we fell in with Sun Myung Moon or Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, we would never have got involved because the signs right. are so obvious for these people. So right. So, give thing. our
0: listeners a few examples, please, from f- about human predators and how to recognize them, protect Surely. yourself.
1: Um, the, the first thing to understand, and, and it seems simplistic to say it, is that such people are mean, and that if somebody's mean to you, you shouldn't just excuse it and justify it and say everybody has bad days. You should take notice. You'd say that
0: person's just been mean, and if they're mean again. If I can, can I? If I can add, if you don't mind, go ahead. Because mean predators often try to make it your fault Mm. that they acted that way. I'm sure you're going to get to that, but just in that frame, I thought is important to add that they're mean, but they make you feel like you caused them to be rude or condescending. Look
1: Look what you've made me do, you know? Right. Yep, please uh, continue. It'll be your fault if I kill the hostage. You know, <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> right? They transfer responsibility and make it guilt uh, for right. you. Exactly right. The next thing right. is that they're they're completely selfish. That when you look at the way they behave, everything is about them. Everything is about what they get. Uh, they don't really care about other people, and they pretend friendship. They pretend love, but they don't actually feel. Anything for other people. Um, they tend to be charming. This, and it's in, you know, it's good to know that there are actually empaths and good people who are charming as well. But mm-hmm. they, they copy this, they mimic this by appearing to be very charming. They're good at flattery, which is to say insincere praise. In the moon, as you had the phrase that's caught on around the world, love bombing, where yeah. you, 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 and it's so easy with, especially with young people, to say to them, "Oh, your hair looks great, and oh, you're so clever," and and the defences go down. You begin come out. Oh, John,
0: two. you don't realize how many how how many gifts you have. You you have leadership material. <laughs> people have not recognized your brilliance, John. They haven't. But they our haven't. program yes. can help you. It's
1: true. What do I have? Where do I sign up? How much does this cost? <laughs> Um, they don't mean what they say um they tend to brag, they tend to boast a lot um and they make up lies, they exaggerate what they've done, so when you fact check them you know and um can I mention Donald Trump at this point no we, we, we don't want to get into that I but, wrote a book on so, i mean you you've written a book about him and and he's he's just textbook i I've watched tens of hours of documentary about them and he, he has a couple of phrases he uses. One of them is uh, to the effect of, I'm sure everybody's going to be really happy with what we've decided here about Guantanamo Bay or what have you. Oh, right. He he has these coverall phrases that-
0: um, And, yeah, and I want to just thank you because you helped me with chapter three because I compared Trump with Hubbard, Moon, mm. and Jim Jones. I couldn't miss the opportunity to because there's so much attention and knowledge about Scientology through Leah Remini and Mm -hmm. Mike Rinder and so many other top people who have left written books and done all kinds of interviews Mm -hmm. over the decades. Please continue.
1: There's been some amazing work. When when they're challenged on anything, they blame somebody else. It's never their fault. They're never responsible. And there are, there are two kinds of predators. There are those that don't actually feel any anxiety or fear, and those tend to be the kind of psychopath types. But then there are the ones that actually are scaredy cats, and they never involve themselves in anything dangerous. However, they'll get you to do dangerous things. I mean, uh, yeah. Rajneesh, one of the stories that Hugh Milne tells in The God That Fail, which is an excellent book. He was um, Rajneesh's bodyguard, right. and yeah. he he actually went to India to find out things about Rajneesh's childhood. This is the man who called himself Bhagwam, or the Supreme God, and right. is now known as Osho the Buddha by uh, his few remaining right. followers. Right, and
0: for our listeners who watch Netflix and saw Wild Wild Country, this is mm-hmm. the cult leader you're referring to. This is
1: the the small man with the beard who took a huge amount of drugs every day. And pretended that he wasn't speaking to people. And, um, but he, as a child, actually dared another child to walk on a tightrope and the child fell off and died. And this is, you know, get other people to take risks. So if you feel somebody's pushing you to take risks, Mm. walk away, get out of the way. Mm. Um, they're very impulsive. They're easily bored. Um, so they want thrills. They want something to stimulate them and excite them. And, which means that they will sometimes themselves take dangerous risks or sometimes make you take them. Um, Ron Hubbard liked to throw people off his ship uh, when he was in Corfu Harbour, and they'd be thrown from a height beyond the high diving board, the swimming pool. Uh, they'd yeah. have their ankles tied together, and they'd be blindfolded, and he'd throw them into the water, You know, which was his way of having fun. Um, they tend to be bullies, and they tend to have explosive tempers this is This is a real giveaway that so if you know you go on a date with somebody and they're they're all sweet and nice to you, and then the waiter there's a smudge on the glass, and they'll scream at the waiter and then they're nice and sweet to you again. Watch out the explosive right. temper is not a good thing; they're cunning, they're manipulative um they enjoy humiliating people um they like putting people down, making them squirm, and they weaken the people around them with insults. Um, so this is a way of gaining power. They'll gaslight people. They'll triangulate where they'll tell one person nasty things about another person. Um, they don't like it if anybody else has any kind of power um, or is praised in any way. They'll, they'll react to that.
0: Um, so for them- Because well, like they come- think they're the center of the universe, so they want all the praise coming to them.
1: Absolutely. Right. And particularly right. with the narcissistic types, without that adulation, they crumple. Um when Trump came to believe that a million people were gonna go and see him talk, and it was actually um K pop fans who booked fake tickets, there's a there was video of him as he arrived back at the White House from Air Force One. And it's the only time I've ever seen it. On camera, he is usually look civilian. He'd undone his tie and he was walking along Sulking, you know, he, what's called a collapsed narcissist. Um, um, th- th- for them, life is a competition. It, you know, Ron Hubbard said life's a game. It isn't, and it, it, right. it really isn't. It's serious, and it's not about winning or, or losing. But for them, it's all about winning and being right. They lie easily. They think nothing of breaking promises. They don't have a conscience. They don't feel remorse or guilt, and they boast about how much they've hurt people. I, mean, I remember we we went to a, you were giving a workshop in in London. In Hendon. We did a press conference together in 2014, and there was this guy there, and he was boasting. and He was saying that he'd gone for a job interview and he'd been treated really badly. And then two years later, the guy who was interviewing him turned up trying to get a job at his firm, and he deliberately strung him along so that he could drop him and humiliate him. And he go, "Yep, that's a predator. That's the way it works." They're parasites. Mm-hmm. They, they they do as little as possible. They live off others. They won't volunteer to help. They won't do anything. Um, they're control freaks. They micro-control everything around them and they stop others from taking control. Um, they force petty rules on people. They they will, you know, uh, and, and this can happen with anybody. I remember there's a wonderful documentary called Time Is All You've Got about the clarinet player, Artie Shaw, who's a brilliant man, I think. But one of his ex, seven ex wives said that if you didn't fold the toilet tissue the right way, you were told off. And they'll, I'm not suggesting that he was a predator. I don't think he was. I think he probably just had a little, little bit of Asperger's going on or something, liked yeah. his toilet tissue folding properly. Um, but it's a characteristic to, to make rules that you can't actually keep. Mm-hmm. And finally, they boast about tricking other people and they boast about breaking the law. So uh, we we actually have a poster on my, my website that you can download and put on your refrigerator. What your is job.
0: what is the URL of your website? Uh, we'll
1: put it in the links. I, 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 haven't, I, I think it's probably opening our minds, but I couldn't be sure okay. at the moment. Okay. But that's a summary but, of, of those points and the so, book expands upon that.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant and it's wonderful. And if you were listening and you go, that describes my ex-husband or that describes my boss. Mm. Um, what, what is your advice to people if they're starting to, oh, this is, a, f- this is a, a, a portrait of someone that I know who I have an involvement with, now what? Reduce
1: your involvement. Um,
0: <laughs> Run and- away would be what I would say, get yeah. away. Create yeah. an exit strategy, find support.
1: Yeah, get a, get away from the person and and whatever control they have over your life. Now, it can be, it does happen that, that um, there are different kinds of predators. So at the one end of the scale, you have the criminal psychopath. There doesn't seem to be anything we can do about criminal psychopaths other than lock them up and stop them yep. from hurting other people. That's sad. You know, hopefully, we will yep. find out some way of dealing with them. It also appears that they are born that way, that they have a deficit in the paralimbic system. The connection between the impulsive old brain and the thinking brain is weakened, and they're born that way. And so, yep. I mean, what at Kent Keel who who did more than 500 fMRI scans on imprisoned psychopaths? He hmm. had one guy who said to him, If you'd looked at it, if he'd looked at you the way he looked at me, you'd have killed him. And it's that what (laughs) looked at me (laughs) that way to kill him. That that's the way they think. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the other end, you have narcissists who, you know, there might be some hope for people with a narcissistic personality disorder. So you have to make a decision about whether somebody is a predator because that's just the way it is. Or if there is something you can do to help them. But if you do want to try and help them, find an ally outside of the relationship. Find somebody who knows about this and can help you. Don't think you can take this on without understanding.
0: Yeah, knowledge is power. That's, you know, and um, may I ask how long you were involved with Scientology?
1: Uh, For nine years.
0: Uh-huh. And guess. you went up to OT5, one of the upper level? Yeah, I, there were,
1: at that time, there were 27 levels in Hubbard's Bridge to Total Freedom. And I did 25 of them. There's been one added since. Um, mm. But I was, my situation was really unusual be, because I was never embedded. I was never uh, immersed. Um, I was a true believer. I believed in it all, but I lived on the outside. I was never a living. You were
0: a public scientist. I was what's called a public Scientologist. So you didn't sign on for the billion-year uh, contracts luckily, like Sea Org members were made no. to sign. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, originally that that contract was a joke. It was put to Hubbard as a joke, and he went, "Yes, <laughs> you know, you sign up for a thousand million years." I and mean, luckily, it's yeah. not the UK billion, which is a million million. You know, it could be much
0: less, But yeah. Um, but yeah but I I want to just comment I asked you how long you were involved and how high up you got mm-hmm. because I want to state you know as you've heard me say before you're one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life one of the most well read one of the best memories uh, and just uh, able to integrate information but you bought into the lie Absolutely. There was hypno- hypnosis and a whole social mm-hmm. uh, su- systematic social influence process. Mm-hmm. But you did realize at a certain point, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, and for me, it
1: was strange because I, I think I was able to stand up and speak out because I wasn't humiliated and abused. There's a rule in Scientology that you have to handle celebrities with kid gloves. And Scientology has its own Luckily for me, it's own definition of celebrity. If you are a writer, an artist, a musician, and I'm all three, Mm -hmm. then you are a celebrity. The fact that I wasn't, Mm -hmm. I was only barely scraping a living didn't matter. So I was treated in a different way. And I walked away and I, I didn't feel, you know, that I'd been abused in any way. But tens and hundreds of people were coming to me. I actually left because I thought Hubbard was dead. And we needed to save this wonderful Scientology. And, within about, and so I was at the center of the independent movement in the United Kingdom. And right. about two or three months in, I was delivered this bundle of documents gathered by a guy called Michael Lynn Shannon about Hubbard's life. And I, about 18 inches stack, and I just sat and read through it. And it, there was no, you know, it was impossible to contradict. Hubbard was a liar. And for me, he said honesty is sanity. He, the road to truth, which he said Scientology was, must be trod with true steps. And I went, Well, if the man laying down the track is a liar, then the track is not trustworthy. What shocked me was that almost nobody I spoke to saw that. They said, Oh well, no, he, you know, the reason he contradicts himself, you know, and says he was a war hero here and says he wasn't a war hero here. The you know the reason he claims to be a nuclear physicist, where here he says he was thrown out of university and failed a course in atomic, which he did. There's a lecture in the uh, 23rd of September 1950 called Introduction to Dianetics, where Hubbard, in his own voice, says he was thrown out of university for failing this course. Later, he will claim to be a nuclear physicist. He claimed right. he'd studied with gurus in the east. This is all nonsense. It's all made up. He was a he was a Pulp fiction writer who who just kept making bigger and bigger stories about himself. Having realized that, I said, I have to stop doing all of this. I have to reject all of it. And then I'll look at the principles one by one and take them back piecemeal if I accept them. I've not found anything in Scientology that isn't better expressed by the people that the idea was stolen from. It's all right. plagiarized. I, I wrote a paper called Possible Origins of Dianetics and Scientology many years ago. Showing, I think, 120 Hubbard ideas where he not only uses somebody else's idea, he actually names that person. So he was aware of where he'd stolen these ideas from.
0: Yeah, But like none, none of it is useful. Mm-hmm. Sorry, like? Like Korzybski. Korzybski. Which, well, you know, language. The, the, no, the,
1: the notion of words. That Korzybski yeah. says um, the word is not the thing itself. He says the map is not the territory. Most of his ideas came directly from Alistair Crowley, the famous sex magician. Uh, Crowley, in fact, wrote to one of his subordinates who was performing sex magic ceremonies with Hubbard. They were masturbating together, these two men. Um, he wrote to this subordinate and said, um, Hubbard's a con man. And the subordinate, Jack Parsons, the inventor of solid rocket fuel, Jet Propulsion Laboratories actually gave all of his money $35,000 in 1946 to Hubbard to set up a business uh, buying and selling yachts and then sued Hubbard to try and get his money back,
0: having realized mm-hmm. that
1: Alistair Crowley was actually correct. So,
0: right, yeah, and uh, we're going to move on from Scientology in a minute, but my understanding is you've kind of you are the archivist in your mind of everything. Every major book that's been written, whether it's uh, Lawrence Wright or Janet Reitman, they all took your material that you had researched and written about. Am I overstating it or is that pretty right. accurate?
1: Stephen Kent, the um, head of history of religion and sociology at uh, Alberta University, said that my work is the foundation for all modern scholarship in, Scientolo- in Scientology. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, there were 14 books written before mine. The first one you know, my book was published in 1991. it It's been re-released in mm-hmm. the unexpurgated version. Uh, right. So the title has been changed to let's sell these people a piece of blue sky rather than just a piece of blue sky. But the first book was written in 1951 by a doctor who'd worked for three months with Hubbard on the formulation of Dianetics. It's called A Doctor's mm-hmm. Report on Dianetics. And from there, there was a lot of work done. There's an incredible journalist called James Phelan, who in the early 1960s studied Hubbard and found things out. And in the late 60s, another called Alexander Mitchell. So I found those things, but it, you know, people are starting to realize the internet wasn't there when I researched. Right. It meant I had to go around and interview people and collect documents. So if you look to Janet Reitman's Inside Scientology, which was a bestseller, The first seven chapters, when you look to the reference notes, she says, largely based upon Piece of Blue Sky or Russell Miller's Barefaced Messiah. Barefaced Messiah is based upon Piece of Blue Sky, and I was the researcher throughout the Barefaced Messiah project. Excellent book, and what a brilliant title, Barefaced Messiah. Um, So, yeah, and in the mid-90s, I worked with Chris Owen, who is a historian, uh, who's Done excellent work on Scientology. He's never been involved with Scientology. And he and I decided what documents should be publicly available. And um, thousands of pages of documents were put on the internet. When I came to republish, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky, there was a somewhat eccentric man, the late Arnie Lerma. And I asked him to write a puff piece for the book. And he wrote, before the internet and safety and numbers, there was John Atak, and mm-hmm. that's probably- Yeah, in, in, and they
0: harassed you, they fair gamed you. 16 years, solid. Horrible. Yeah. And uh, Mike Rinder, who is head of OSA, uh, was on the dishing out of the abuse that was heaped on you as a the whistleblower that you are. Yeah, and, but, and, you and know we're now
1: great I, friends.
0: Yeah, so. it's uh, it just shows that people, and I think he was in 46 years, can leave, you know. Once once the bubble pops and you realize, I'm trusting a liar. I'm trusting a predator. Why I'm I'm valuable. Like I have a life. I don't need to be someone else's slave. I don't My, need to be labor trafficked.
1: Yeah, Mike Rinder was six years old when his parents got involved in Australia. He was 18 when, as you say, he was trafficked. Um, he was sent to Europe. Got onto Hubbard's ship. His passport was taken away. He'd gone right. there to train and go back to Australia, and he's told, "No, you you now work for us." And yeah. he ended up working directly for Hubbard, and um, has many. You know, there is some things on my YouTube channel, some interviews I've done with him, and, and even I was incredulous. I, I mean, I've talked to hundreds of people about Scientology, but right. every now and then some new story will come up. And it was on the other week I was talking to Karen de Le carrier and she had interviewed who was a
0: T- tell was, people who she is. Karen Lucario is one of
1: only eight people who reached the very highest level in Scientology, which is called mm-hmm. a Class 12 case supervisor, which is very meaningless. But only eight people reached this level. She interviewed a woman who had come out much more recently than she did. I mean, Karen was also married to the president of the Church Scientology, He Jensch, along the way. Um, wonderful, wonderful woman. She interviewed this woman who said that now their secret international base, which is not very secret, it's at Gilman Hot Springs in California. David Miscavige, the dictator of Scientology, who's now actually been in charge of Scientology for longer than Hubbard was, been there hmm. since 1986, um, that Miscavige has them go through the confessional reports every week and whoever has done the most extreme form of masturbation gets to go on the stage and have their report read out to the whole group. and To shame them. My jaw just dropped. And the thing thing is, you've got three or 400 people standing in the room and nobody is staying. Nobody, you know, you or me, we would stood up and said, no, you don't do yeah. this. But right. no, nobody dares. They've all been you know, cloned in,
0: into Pro- this position. Programs with fears. So, yeah. John, we can talk for hours, but I'd like to just kind of hit on some key um, topics that Mm. you and I have talked about. You've done YouTubes on, um, just to show the breadth of of your knowledge, but also to get people curious and interested uh, uh, in learning more. So you introduced me to Yuval Laor's uh, and and his theory about awe and fervor. Mm. Can I ask you to share why you and I am now a convert, believing this is really a missing, very critical piece to understanding my bite model, for example, of mind control, with the E of of emotional control. Say say some words about Yuval and his theory, please.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I introduced him to you about 10 minutes after I met him because he was up at Toronto. Um, right. He and I talk almost every week. Um like us, you know, <laughs> yeah, as as do we. And we visited with each other as as we have. I, I've been to conferences with him um, in Bordeaux, in, in Riga, in Manchester. We went with my two youngest boys on a holiday to Spain. He comes and stays here when he's going out to Israel. So we spend a lot of time together. And he brought the work of Ivia Yablonka, who's um, a professor at Tel Aviv University, I'm one of the leading experts on evolution. And what she's saying, and I think it is generally accepted now, that the idea of, you know, there's just natural selection and sexual selection, where, you know, the partners you choose will determine how people look. That beyond that, there's also epigenetics, which are behaviors which can influence genes. Genes are not read only, you can write on them, contrary yep. to what Richard Dawkins says. But there's yep. also the fascinating. Um, idea of symbolic evolution, uh, cultural transmission and cultural transmission is you can see it in animals. So, for example, if you look at lions in different parts of Africa, in some prides of lions, the females do all hunting. In others, the males hunt. And that's a cultural transmission that's passed on from generation to generation yeah. that actually affects our genes. With human beings, we have language and language becomes because we then have writing, we have a memory. And so our evolution, for me, this was exciting because it it was almost a kind of spiritual thing to realise that that it is actually important what every person does, that we're Mm -hmm. all part of this changing web of humanity and we can all influence the future for humanity. And at the moment, the kind of selfish short-termism, which our politicians are like, how do I get voted back in being the main idea? because then I'll do good things, that, that that stupid idea that we must look to the future and our behavior, and that includes our feelings, you know, the way mm-hmm. we behave. So it always seemed to me that you know, you've covered the ground very well with, with the bike model. But it seemed that that emotional part was, was not fully refined. I talked, to, and you talked about people getting a peak experience in a group, getting high, getting euphoric. And therefore entering into states where their critical thinking is impaired. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how clever you are. You know, right. I'd, I'd read Plato by the, long before I arrived at Scientology at the age of 19. I'd read the Crito, the Phaedo, the Symposium, the Last Dial of Socrates. I knew about Socratic reasoning. And I then used it to believe in Scientology. So mm-hmm. not to evaluate Scientology. And
0: mm-hmm. it,
1: the important thing is the emotional connection we make where we, um, we don't de- develop what William James called feelings of knowing that these certainties about this is the right person. You know, this person is a hero. This person is wonderful mm-hmm. and belief transforms. I, I had an example of it, which I always use. I was about 17 and a, a street evangelist came up to me and we talked two hours because you know what I'm like, Steve. I'm oh, very gregarious. And um the end of two hours, he literally backed away from me. It was like I was going to jump on his back. And I wasn't being unpleasant. I was just saying, have you thought about it this way? or what? Because I just happened to have reread the Gospels. And I'm fascinated by the teaching of Jesus. But I didn't really believe in the God that the Christian church was trying to persuade me to believe in. And as he backed away, he said, I don't understand the Bible, but I know it's all true. Those are the feelings of knowing. And Yuval has shown that because we will accept um, something that is inexplicable that occurs, something that seems miraculous, and you know, we both talk about the work of Darren Brown, who has shown again and again how the easy the stage, it is.
0: Uh, the stage entertainer who does, uh, you know, NLP manipulation, hypnotic suggestion, etc., going. I mean
1: in- interesting he's never studied nlp he's just understood mm. and as and you know you said erickson and right. uh, bateson are behind anything that's come out through nlp but he's understood how you can distract somebody and make them think that something's impossible so he right. you know he did a show where he did russian roulette spinning a bullet in a chamber and didn't blow his head off you know because yep. he actually was in complete control he he got people, uh, business people, to hold up a security wagon with a gun, which in this country, yeah. it was even more unusual. Well, a lot more unusual in the U.S. Right. He showed how you can get people to believe something. Um, there's even a show, there's a, a wonderful show called Messiah, where he, um, he, he, he he talks with a room full of atheists. They've only come I them, saw I that, yeah. And he gets them all believing in God without really saying anything because he's able to subtly move that belief. So Yuval talks about awe and the way that you develop awe in a person, that sense of transcendence, and how that can then be transmuted into fervor. And yep. you can apply his model, and he has low and high fervor people. He shows you know, that... that
0: yeah, we're going to we're going to move on from Yuval Kas's theory. We, I think you, we've interviewed him for 3 hours at a time and it's so rich. But mm-hmm. the critical yeah, thing is on, on my turn, we, yeah. we it's a natural thing to look up to cele- celebrities that you admire mm-hmm. and kind of like imbue an emotional state and status. You know, oh, I'm going to be near Paul McCartney or whatever. I just watched the uh, the, the Beatles back, documentary. Yeah. Yeah, but the 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 the, that's how I felt towards Moon. Like people Mm -hmm. were like, "He's greater than Jesus. He's the most amazing." You know, and the the guy farted and smelled bad and didn't clean his ears. Like I was a leader, and I got to experience those things. That didn't break through my awe of him because yeah, I, I mean, was Hub, so Poet
1: had rotting teeth and smelled awful and he had a great yes. big lump a cyst on his head but people still come away going oh but he was so wonderful you know he was charismatic
0: right but understanding how emotional states influence us profoundly we mm-hmm. may th- rationalize later and justify through a, the experience of why we're joining a a destructive cult or whatever, but it 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 hacks our system, our personalities, our minds.
1: Yeah, we we use the full weight of our intelligence to buttress our stupidity. When you look at the (laughs) founders of science, look at say Isaac Newton, who's considered by many to be perhaps the most significant of all scientists. He actually spent more time performing alchemy physics and his physics was all done as a young man he spent more time trying to find the code in the bible that would show him the dimensions of solomon's temple which would be the proportions of the universe and you go that's science i mean that's not my idea and you can go through one person after another where we have this belief that they're really rational and calm and calculating and find they aren't galileo um he had two children two daughters he put them both into a convent yeah, he's meant to be the man that was against religion. And his argument with the Pope had nothing to do with whether the sun and you know, whether the earth goes around the sun. It was because he'd made a fool of the Pope, calling him buffo or fool in a book he'd written. Mm-hmm. So, this kind of fantasy that there is calm reason on one side and emotion on the other, we don't actually, as human beings, separate those things. Once we have feelings of knowing, once we think that something's true we will use our intelligence to believe that thing. So critical thinking, which we should all develop, we also need critical emoting. We need to be aware of our emotions.
0: Yes, self-awareness is so absolutely important. And um, to realize we're all human and to disconnect our egos from our beliefs Mm -hmm. and be prepared to change our beliefs if evidence is produced that's substantial, even mm. though we have an investment, maybe for nine years or or however many years in a particular ideology or group to go, oops, you know? <laughs> I did the best I could at the time, what I believed was real or true or the experiences, but now I know better. And once, you, once your eyes open and you go, because I had a similar thing in my waking up realizing that Moon was a liar. And if he was a liar, how could he be an agent of God? Or how Mm -hmm. could he be trustworthy? It's not possible. So like for me, that was where I was like, wait a minute, i have been putting him on a pedestal, thinking he's the greatest man on earth who knows everything, and he's gonna lead us to this paradise on earth. And once I allowed that negative thought in my consciousness, it was like a house of cards, just going plop, 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 plop in my mind. It was all based on the presupposition. He he knew something great, and he Mm -hmm. didn't. I wanna switch topics, if I may, in time Mm -hmm. that we have remaining, because we've talked extensively about meditation, and in particular, the rage of mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would ask you to share some thoughts that you have about, about that with our listeners.
1: And I think it really exemplifies the, the way that emotion overcomes reason. Um, I've Over the years, I've subscribed to New Scientist for, for 30 years, and I've had, I think, eight letters published. But I've written to them three times about mindfulness and been ignored because they've written these kind of eulogies about mindfulness. So, for example, the comedian Ruby Wax, who is known to suffer from bipolar disorder, bless her, incredibly funny, clever woman, She went and did a a master's degree in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy at Oxford University with a man called Mark Williams and raved about how fantastic mindfulness is. So I wrote and pointed out that a number of mindfulness practitioners, for example, Professor Willoughby Britton at Brown University, have said, hang on a minute. Um, Oxford University, in fact, the guy who's writing the, um, Miguel Farias, who's writing the Oxford Handbook of Meditation, he says, I'm a mindfulness meditator, but a friend of mine said, you're becoming a junkie. And he said he was right. I was spending too much time doing it. So I pointed to scientific information, including the $110 million that have failed to produce results spent by the National Institutes of Health in the United States. They only spent $23 million on transcendental meditation. And the bizarre claims are being made, the idea that by meditating, which is fundamentally Mindfulness is what's called the Zazen meditation. Um, That By meditating, you can overcome anxiety, depression. It's actually recommended in our health service here. And doctors who fail to point a depressed patient towards the possibility of mindfulness or a a patient who's in pain um, can actually risk discipline. Yet there is no substantial evidence to support this. So people say, oh, but, but I felt better when I did it. Well, that's okay. The side example, which I studied, is I actually did the Zazen meditation. I learned it in the Zen monastery when I was 18. So I'm very much aware of what it is. I've practiced it for years. Was that and, in Japan, John? No, it was in the north of England, but it, it oh, was okay. under um Jiu Kennett, who, of course, received the third transmission to the Masterhood um, in a Japanese monastery. Right. And she is a controversial figure. You know the former president of her association at Mount Shasta. Uh, mm-hmm. is it Josh Barron. Uh, um,
0: Josh Barron is a friend of ours who was yeah. in that cult. Yeah.
1: And he was high up and, and he points out that it's an authoritarian group. But nonetheless, it is traditional Soto Zen Buddhism. There's yeah. a wonderful book um, by a man called Brian Victoria uh called Zen at War. And he is a Zen priest who has researched the, the period from the 1890s onwards where Zen meditation was taught to all of the military and the ruthlessness, the brutality of the Japanese military during World War II. Um, I think if you're a prisoner of war with the Japanese, you had a 40% likelihood of dying. Whereas if you're a prisoner with the British, you had a 0.2% danger of mm-hmm. dying while in captivity. It, we right. know, you know, the bridge on the river Kwai, the, the they right. ate the inhabitants of islands, called them black pigs the terrible atrocities that were committed. He details them. And it was only after the publication of his book in the 1990s that two of the Rinzai sects of Zen actually publicly apologized. The Soto Zen sect had already apologized because they were training people. You then shift over to mindfulness and John Kabat-Zinn, who's the man who's made millions from it, has right. said that you don't need the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, right thought, right action, right belief. These You don't need these things. All you need to do is is meditate mindfully, and you will achieve compassion. He then went off to train the American military in mindfulness meditation. You go, hang on a minute. Didn't I just say that the Japanese military were all trained in this? And it certainly didn't make them compassionate. But the scientific community want to believe this. Right. So they won't. You know, I, everything I wrote was evidence-based with numbers, right. where the studies were, they wouldn't publish it New Scientist. So that bias is a feelings of knowing, it's, you know, don't rock the boats, don't upset us. We need devil's advocates, you know, as um, Irving Yanis said in, in talking about a group thing, every group needs somebody in there who says, I don't think that's a good idea. I am that person.
0: Yeah, you're, it's great, and we have a mutual friend. Actually, you introduced him to me. His work to me. I haven't met him yet. Ira Chaloff. Yeah, and and uh, he wrote a great book: Dis, um, "Intelligent Disobedience and Courageous Followership." I want to yeah, share a few subjects. a few things about about his work? Yeah, please. Ira's,
1: a, Ira's dear friend. He was involved in Scientology. We first met in 1977. We became friends close friends a couple of years afterwards. And Ira went in about 1982, he worked for me. I had a little artist agency, worked for me part-time. And he went to work in Washington on Capitol Hill. Um, I think with the idea of bringing Scientology's brilliant administrative technology to politics, and right. he found that, that the administrative technology was rubbish. The guy was working for knew so much more about people than how to get them to work better. Uh, Before Al Gore was president, Ira worked, I think for eight months, sorting his office out and making it work better. And Mm -hmm. he developed this idea of courageous followership, which I think comes from having worked closely with Ron Hubbard and seeing what a bullying tyrant he was and saying, there's a responsibility for followers to do something about this. And so he developed a whole subject, which is now all over the world. He's Recognised, he's a fellow, travelling fellow of Cambridge University. He's right. been, you know, he's spoken at the European Council. He's spoken at Sandhurst Military College. He's spoken to the FBI, to all sorts of people. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. Then he was giving a talk one day, and a, and a woman said, "I have an example of what you're talking about under my desk." And he said, oh, "I'm sorry," and she brought out a guide dog that she was training, and she said, "This dog has to be able to, if a blind." person is being guided by the dog the dog has to be able to say no stop you're about to walk into something and we call mm-hmm. this intelligent disobedience why don't we teach this to our children so if you look up um blink think choice voice those four words in google yes a little five minute video
0: about how to teach four-year-olds it's great i've shared it a million times yeah to give young people, but it's really for adults too. If you're in a situation that's incongruent, some authority figure is asking you to do something that you're not sure about, blink, you know, like take a pause or take a yeah. deep breath and think about it, and realize you have a choice. You don't have to comply. Mm-hmm. And if you're a little a little person, you know, tell. <laughs> so and so is trying to tell me to to hurt my opponent on the football field or so and so is wanting me you know to abuse me sexually or something mm-hmm. you got to you got to empower people to stand up to authority that is not legitimate
1: yeah and there is a problem authoritarianism is a system of compliance and obedience and we right. are teaching the wrong thing in our schools it should be you know, when you're born you can't look after yourself but by the time you're 18, you should be able to look after yourself. And so schools should be giving ever more responsibility. And they actually tend to take it away. And it's not the fault of teachers. They're trapped in the system that is forcing them to do this. The work yep. of Matthew Lippmann is very important. Um, or Sir Ken Robinson. Uh, uh, Oh, he had one of the most
0: popular TED Talks, Ken Robinson, I think, about how the education system is set up like a factory assembly line, and we batch children by their ages, and it's like the opposite of encouraging creativity, spontaneity, play, curiosity, all the good things.
1: Yeah, it's appalling. and. You see, this is why I'm so hopeful for the future because, um, you know, my current work is to develop curricula for schools, um, mm-hmm. to, so the kids will recognize human predators, so that they'll understand the techniques of seduction and recruitment to use, and so that they'll be able to tell facts from fiction, you know, see if something is fake news or not. Um, right. And they these are not actually that complicated. For the fake news one, for example, there are only seven points that, that you need to have to understand this. And if all kids are shown this, and we can just make that slight move so that a small percentage of kids go, hang on a minute, I don't think we should be doing that. I think we saw it, if you look at 1914, August 1914, when people in this country were queuing to go and kill Germans, you know, that Mm -hmm. that it, it was the thing people most wanted to do. When the Iraq war, the second Iraq war happened, 80% of the population said, not in my name, we don't want to do this. A million people marched to London and said no. That's incredible public transformation. And yeah, And just a, a little bit more of a push. You know, and, and, and society has transformed so much morally. In the 1870s, in the US and in, in Europe, children of four years old would put up chimneys to clean them. And if they got stuck in the chimney, they were left there to die. They were put down the mines. Thankfully, our justice system has got better. It needs to get a lot better still because there's still a lot of corruption. There's still a lot of authoritarianism in our system. But... You know, the good cops and the, the good judges and the good people in the fire service and the first Good responders. with
0: conscience looking for real justice as opposed yeah. to political expediency.
1: And the good teachers. You know, the mo- perhaps the most important people in a society are good teachers and they've had power taken away from them so that they yes. can do sats. And you look at the achievements tables, the PISA tables that are taken every two years all around the world, the 170 countries to them, and the countries that come at the top in literacy, the Scandinavian countries, they have one examination. In their whole time they're at school, they sit one examination. It's not all of this, you have to learn all of these bits of information and be able to spew them out. No, you have to be able to understand the topic so you can do
0: something with it. Yeah, yeah. and even more importantly, teaching a love of learning and yes, teaching curiosity. people how to research. Mm. That, yeah. that, that's, you know, all kids seem to have that natural curiosity mm. and playfulness. And on my influence continuum, we, I talk about the, the authoritarian side where there's corporal punishment and children are being hit and spanked and beaten and belted and paddled. And that does brain damage, according mm. to the experts studying of that. Yes, it does. But they're training people to be blind, obedient to authority figures.
1: Yeah, and that is authoritarianism, the idea that that the bullies who think they should be in charge and the people who think bullies should be in charge, that gave us Nazism and it gives us the neo-Nazi movements and the Ku Klux Klan, all sorts of these deranged movements. And for me, it's not a matter of looking at the left or the right when I see this idea. Yes. The left can go authoritarian, the right is authoritarian. I believe in democracy. I believe in the centre. And that means people being willing to take responsibility. And we can't have proper democracies until people are willing to say, yeah, this is what I want. This is what should be done. Um, Right. Virtual Taiwan has given us an example of that, which was to say, you know, well, if they had a division over the electric scooters and they say they put it to the people to talk about it, created it and actually came to a solution that if right. you wore a crash helmet and you drove at a certain speed and these laws, and they looked for a supermajority, two thirds of the people agreeing before saying, we'll make this law. And it was a way of showing that you can democratically make laws rather than these incredible arbitrary ways that, that you know, we, we belong in, in the 19th century most of them, things like the electoral college system in the US. I mean, what a ridiculously undemocratic system, you know, that. A political party can control a state. Right, it, it made sense in 1773, maybe, but it doesn't make much sense anymore.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, we're we're struck in our moment in America with the undo potential undoing of counting everybody's vote fairly and squarely, and going with who wins, uh, and this this uh, this coup that's been. Uh, brewing for really decades uh, is in full form right now. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm in for the duration to do what I can to yeah. shed a light, share an experience, try to explain the concepts. And I'm delighted to know that, you know, you are there, you're on the other side of the ocean, but that we have, you know, um, really talented Intelligent, experienced people who are prepared to teach, but we have been largely stigmatized, minimized, ignored. Uh, your, your your example with the uh, with the Scientist magazine um, is another exa- you know, just a, an example of your comments don't fit in the cubby hole that we think you know is what people want to read about, mm-hmm. or. What the what the common notion is, as you were describing that, I was thinking about in the U.S. If anyone has an alcohol, you know, arrest, they're mandated in many states to go to AA or go mm-hmm. to twelve step programs, yeah. despite all of the horrible uh, cure rates of twelve step programs. I think it's somewhere five to eight percent of everybody um, that goes through that. But they're made to feel like they're going to be an alcoholic for their whole life, mm-hmm. that they're powerless, and other deleterious beliefs. Um, yeah. So as as we bring our our interview, our connection, I don't feel like this was an interview; it's more like a chat. Uh, to an end, I want to invite you, you know, kind of you know, give you last words uh, for our audience.
1: I think there's one important idea that, that I kind of stumbled into while I was researching this book. And the book is a distillation of 40 years of trying to understand these problems and trying, yep. you know, looking into the social psychology and the history and, and, and saying, well, how can this be explained in, in straightforward terms? And one of the essential misconceptions that exists in religion and in psychology the idea that you have an enemy inside yourself. Um, Freud talked about the id, this beast that dwells within. Some religions will talk about gadons, dibbux, demons that that live inside you in Scientology, body thetans. Um, The idea of an unconscious mind, as Freud put it forward, which is completely inaccurate, but it's like there's this hidden enemy fighting you on the inside. and People manipulate us by saying, you don't know what's going on in there. Well, I think we do. And I think we can be conscious of all of the unconscious processes that are going yes. on inside ourselves that we need to be. I mean, we don't need to be controlling our heart rate and things like that. And so, you know, that we are, we are already, I mean, one of the statements that's made in, in Buddhism is, I am enlightened, you're enlightened. So we're already enlightened. I personally don't really believe in enlightenment. I believe in relationship with other human beings yeah that's the, the vital thing but but so taking that and taking hope from it that that we can actually transform the world and and make it a better place that means getting together and it means if you've had dreadful experiences rather than spending your life whinging about the group and attacking the group that did these awful things to you it's time to come out of adolescence and become adult and do something in the world about authoritarianism itself and yeah. you're bringing more power to the, the the masses, to the people, to do good in the world. So th- there's my author's message. For the day. Yeah,
0: it's fantastic. John, you're wonderful. I can't wait to come visit you uh, yeah, next year. We have a plan to be together to celebrate a wonderful occasion. We do. Um, and... Uh, We we need to kind of mobilize and organize and and, in a strategic Mm -hmm. way because we're the underfunded or no funded uh, funded. uh, whistleblowers who are Mm -hmm. like ah yeah and the we've been there yeah
1: yeah Yeah. Yeah. and we can help we know we I know how to de radicalize people if any government's actually interested in doing that which they don't seem to be I've been trying twenty. 25 years
0: to talk governments
1: right. about that. And, you know, it, it would be good to, to actually get something moving. So anybody out there who has organizational skills and who feels, you know, has some money that they would like to put to a good cause, that would be very useful.
0: Yeah, I, I heartily second <laughs> your notion. So thank you, my friend. Be well. Stay yes. safe. And Great thank pleasure. you again so much. As always, Take thank care. you, Steve. Bye-bye. bye That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website, freedomofmind.com. There you will find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend reading my books, Combating Cult Mind Control and Freedom of Mind, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. Thanks for listening. Thank you.